is God angry? That question might make us a little bit uncomfortable. It might make us uncomfortable because it doesn't seem like a good advertisement for Christianity to say, yes, God is angry. We want our family and our friends and our neighbors to be interested in what we believe. And we might worry that saying God is angry will make them uninterested. The idea of God's anger doesn't seem like a good selling point. And that is why some well-meaning Christians choose not to talk about God being angry. Some well-meaning Christians even come out and deny that God is angry. Never mind keeping quiet about his anger, they assure people he really isn't angry at all. But I would guess for most of us here this evening, that is not a position we would be willing to take. We wouldn't deny God's anger because we read the Bible. The Bible has plenty to say about his anger, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. So we probably wouldn't deny that God is angry, but we may still feel pretty uncomfortable talking about his anger. Because deep down we might feel it gives a false picture of God. We might feel it misrepresents him to talk about his anger. If we're Christians, we have experienced God's love. We communicate with Him as our loving Father. And so, maybe it seems to sell Him short to talk about His anger. Because we know Him to be loving and compassionate and tender. I think for many of us, that may be our instinct as Christians. We know God's anger is a significant part of the biblical picture. It cannot be denied. And at the same time, maybe sometimes we feel uneasy about it because we have come to know his love. And as we turn this evening to the book of Lamentations, we are going to find, I hope, some help for our uneasiness. A couple of weeks ago, we started looking at Lamentations, and we saw this book as a series of five poems. And these poems are about the ruined city of Jerusalem. The historical situation is that Jerusalem and the wider area of Judah were devastated by King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army. In the mornings, we've been hearing recently from Haggai. Well, this is a long time before the situation Haggai is dealing with. The Babylonians first put the city of Jerusalem under siege, which produced horrible conditions in the city. And then in 586 BC, they finally broke through the walls, destroyed the place, and took many of the people into exile in Babylon. And the five poems in Lamentations are about the aftermath of that devastation. These are poems about life in the ruins. They're poems that are filled with emotion. At one level, they are about human suffering. But one writer has pointed out, ultimately, this book is an encounter with God's 
anger. In chapter 1, we heard Jerusalem herself saying, the Lord has brought this suffering and devastation on me in the day of his fierce anger. The book of Lamentations is an encounter with God's anger. Chapter 1 showed the justice of his anger. Jerusalem said, the Lord is righteous. He was in the right to bring this devastation on me, for I rebelled against his command. Chapter 1 showed the justice of God's anger. Chapter 2 has a different focus. Chapter 2 shows us the strangeness of his anger. The word strange refers to something that's abnormal, something that is alien. And the book of Isaiah says that anger is God's strange work and his alien task. It's Isaiah 28, 21. And here in Lamentations 2, we're going to see why that is. So let's read this, Lamentations chapter 2. If you haven't found it yet, it's page 824 in the Green Church Bibles or 1279 in the larger print Bibles. And we'll uh, take the time to read the whole of chapter 2. How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. The Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament. 
Together they wasted away. Her gates have sunk into the ground. Their bars he has broken and destroyed. Her kings and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out in the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine as they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life ebbs away in their mother's arms? What can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The prophecies they gave you were false and misleading. All who pass your way clap their hands at you. They scoff and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth and say, we've swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for. We have lived to see it. The Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord, you walls of daughter Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night. As the watches of the night begin, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Look, Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. As you summoned to a feast day, so you summoned against me terrors on every side. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. Those I cared for and reared my enemy has destroyed. This is God's Word. And it is certainly about God's anger. There's no doubt at all about that. But how does this passage show us the strangeness of his anger? Well, if we know anything about Israel's history... We know how God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. 
We know that he freed them from horrible oppression under Pharaoh. And then God traveled with them through the wilderness. On that journey, we know that he was present with them in a special tent called the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle was known as God's footstool. And the end of the book of Exodus describes God's glory coming in the form of a cloud, settling on that tabernacle and filling the tabernacle. And throughout Israel's journey in the wilderness, the cloud of God's glory went ahead, leading the people forward. Finally, God brought them into a land of their own, a land that he gifted to them. He replaced in time the tabernacle with the temple, and God showed the people how they could relate to him with priests, sacrifices, and festivals of worship, all ordained by the Lord himself. God gave Israel a king, and all through that time, the God, the Lord, was fighting for Israel. He was bringing his strength to bear on their behalf. He was protecting them, defeating their enemies. The way the Old Testament puts it is to say the Lord's right hand was with Israel. That was God's normal way of relating to Israel. In love, he freed them. He led them, he fought for them, and he made a way for them to show their devotion and worship to him. And with all of that in mind, look again at the opening sentence of Lamentations chapter 2. How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. Instead of the cloud of God's protecting presence, that cloud that has been with Israel in the past, now there's the cloud of his anger. And here's what that led to, still in verse 1. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. God threw down the temple. That place was the splendor of Israel because God's presence was there. His footstool was there. But in his anger, the Lord did not remember it. That doesn't mean his mind went blank. It means he no longer treated it as his dwelling place. Look how it goes on in verse 2. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. Now, of course, it was the Babylonian army who swallowed up and tore down those places. It was the Babylonians who ousted the leaders of Israel. But behind the Babylonians was the Lord, working through those invaders. And we saw earlier, normally the Lord's right hand protected Israel. But verse 3 says, he withdrew his protecting right hand. Verse 4 goes even further. He turned his hand against Israel. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. 
His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who are pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. It was God who gave Israel their whole system of sacrifices. He gave them all their holy days for worship. But look in verse 6. Now it's the Lord who has taken them away. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. The sense of that seems to be the great temple in Jerusalem has been demolished as easily as a garden shed. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. The Lord has undone all that he did for Israel. He has taken away from Israel all that he had given to them. And in case we think all of this happened because the Lord had a bad day and lost his rag in a moment of rage, look at verse 8. The Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. Someone who uses a measuring line is not acting in a hurry. They're planning carefully and they're acting thoughtfully. That's what God did. There was nothing impulsive about his devastation of Jerusalem. It was controlled. It was a premeditated act on God's part. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, God describes himself as slow to anger. And that is the point here in verse 8. And what God chose to do was to act in a way that was contrary to his normal way of relating to Israel. Normally, his right hand protected Israel, but he chose to use his right hand to destroy, to tear down what he himself had built up. And the aftermath of all this, verse 10, shows us the elders and the young women of Jerusalem sitting on the ground in silence, with their heads bowed to the ground. What are they supposed to make of what has happened? What are you and I supposed to make of what has happened? Well, first of all, we have to see that what has been described here is what the Bible calls God's strange work and his alien task. When we talk about the strangeness of God's anger, that doesn't mean he is angry in a strange, abnormal way. It means it is abnormal for him to be angry at all. Anger is strange and alien to God because it is not, it is not part of God's essence. The Bible says God is love. It never says God is anger or God is wrath. And the reason for that is God has always been love. 
He has always been holy and righteous and just. But God has not always been wrathful. Wrath is not part of God's eternal nature. He is capable of being wrathful, of course, we see that. But in terms of God's character, it is not normal for him to be wrathful. God had never been wrathful until the day sin entered the world. God's wrath, his anger, is a response to sin. Without sin, there would be no wrath. One writer explains it like this. Before the foundation of the earth, the triune God had perfect love, joy, holiness, and peace. There was no wrath because there was no sin. Wrath only exists where sin exists. And that is why the Bible calls wrath God's strange work and his alien task. He is not by nature an angry God. And so when he becomes angry, when he pours out his wrath, what does that show us? The strangeness of God's anger shows the seriousness of sin. If anger is strange to God, if it is not normal for Him, then we know the sin that rouses Him to anger is deadly, deadly serious. Imagine if God were a constantly bubbling cauldron of wrath. Imagine that was his normal state, that he was eternally irritable and perpetually ready to explode. Well, then when he poured out his wrath on sin, we'd have no way of knowing whether sin was serious. If God's anger went off at the slightest excuse, then maybe we'd think sin is just a slight thing. If an irritable God became angry, we'd say, oh, well, that's just the way he is. It doesn't take much to set him off. But we know wrath is not natural to God. We know he is slow to anger. Incredibly slow if we read the Old Testament history that led up to the devastation of Jerusalem. It was hundreds of years before God poured out the judgment we've read about here. We know anger does not arise quickly or easily in God. And so when it does arise, how serious must the thing be that caused his anger to arise? If his eternal nature is love, how serious must the thing be that moved him to the strange work of pouring out his wrath? Tearing down what he had built up. Devastating what he had created. 
And remember, when we talk about Jerusalem, we're talking about the place that was known as the city of God. It was the home of his temple, the place where his presence touched the earth. If sin caused God to devastate that city, how serious must sin be? And if we have read the Bible, we know that this devastation of Jerusalem is a foreshadowing of the devastation that is coming on every square inch of this world where God is rejected or ignored. Everywhere that his good rule is rejected in favor of human pride and greed and injustice. God's wrath on Jerusalem was not the beginning and end of it. His wrath on Jerusalem was a token of the wrath that must come on the whole world if it persists in sin. And if God's slow to rise anger did what we've seen in this passage to special privilege Jerusalem, what will his anger do finally to this world? This world that has been rejecting him since Genesis chapter 3. When humanity decided to make themselves God in God's place. The fact that anger is God's strange work and alien task should not make us think it is safe to carry on in sin. Defying God. The fact that God is slow to anger should make us run a mile from the one thing that makes him anger. And as Christians, all of this should leave us in no doubt that downplaying the reality of God's anger at sin is not a way to be kind and loving to the world around us. There is more to notice in this poem, though. In the first 10 verses, the poet described the devastation brought about by God's strange anger. And we were left in verse 10 with the elders and the young women of Jerusalem sitting in silence with their heads bowed to the ground. And it's as if that scene in chapter 10, as he pictures it, it tips the poet himself over the edge. Because in verse 11, he stops describing what he sees and he starts describing what he feels. Verse 11, my eyes feel from weeping. I am in torment within. Literally, he says, my stomach is in turmoil or my stomach churns. He thinks he's going to be sick. My heart is poured out in the ground because my people are destroyed. Because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city. As their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. What can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? 
Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? The poet looks at this ruined city and he sees the children, the infants, fainting in the ruins, their lives ebbing away. The parents and the grandparents, they pursued their own idols. They abandoned God and brought this devastation on Jerusalem. But what about the next generation? What hope is there for them? The poet feels sick when he looks around at them. And he asks the question at the end of verse 13, who can heal you? What hope is there for you? Can there be a future for this ruined city and those who are growing up in it? And that has got to be our concern as well. As you and I look at our own ruined city, Pelsall, Walsall, England, the UK, doesn't our stomach churn sometimes at the things we see? Both the sin and also the horrible brokenness that comes from the sin? The devastation it brings, particularly on children. Don't we wonder as we look at them, who can heal you? Here in our passage, the poet looks at the failed healers Jerusalem has known. Look at verse 14. The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The prophecies they gave you were false and misleading. Religious leaders let Jerusalem down. Those leaders were so concerned to fit in with fashionable ideas. They were so concerned to say what they thought people wanted to hear from them that they conducted a religious cover-up. They kept quiet about the seriousness of sin and the reality of God's wrath. They covered up that truth. And so their nice words were actually deadly words. Making people think they were okay. When in reality the Lord had his measuring line out. Ready to bring judgment on their sin. As soon as religious leaders decide to say what people want to hear rather than what they need to hear, those religious leaders become deadly to those who listen to them. Because they're saying things in the name of God that are false and misleading. And here the poet says to Jerusalem, those kind of leaders are no help to you. And when it boils down to it, your friends, Jerusalem, are not much more help to you than your enemies in this. The response of Jerusalem's enemies is in verse 16. All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth. They say, we've swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for. We've lived to see it. 
Now that's predictable. No one expects help from their enemies. But look back at verse 15. All who pass your way clap their hands at you. They scoff and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of the whole earth? And this is not the same group as verse 16. And although the NIV has used the word scoff here as well, the tone seems to be not mockery like in verse 16. The tone here seems to be a kind of helpless bewilderment of those who pass by. The word translated scoff literally means whistle. This is the kind of thing we do when we don't know what to say. We put our hands together, we blow some air out of our mouths, and we shake our heads. We might have sympathy with what we see and hear, but we don't know how to help. And here the poet says to Jerusalem, we all know your enemies can't help you. And you know what? Your friends can't do much either. They can make sympathetic noises, but they can't heal you. They can't lift you out of the ruins of sin. So where is Jerusalem to turn? To the Lord to the one who has brought devastating judgment on her sin. Why should the people turn to him? Because wrath and judgment is his strange work. It is his alien task. If it was normal for God to be wrathful, if that was his nature, there'd be no hope in turning to him. All you could hope for would be more of the same. But because anger and wrath are God's strange work, we can dare to seek compassion and mercy from Him. The strangeness of God's anger means there is hope for mercy. Look how that comes out in verse 17. The Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. Now, as we read that, we might think, if there's hope for mercy in there, it's pretty subtle. It's so subtle, I can't see it at all. But what we need to know is the word God has fulfilled is the word of his Old Testament law, specifically his word in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy sets out two futures for Israel, one of blessing and one of cursing, one of life and one of death. And what has been described so far in Lamentations 2 corresponds to the curses set out in Deuteronomy. God told Israel in advance all this would happen if they chose to persist in disobedience to him. And that underlines the point that what happened to Jerusalem was not down to a flash of irritability on God's part. It was hundreds of years before what he warned them about came true. 
He was incredibly slow to anger. But here's the main point about this reference to Deuteronomy. The same God who warned about the results of disobedience also called the people to choose life by coming to Him and giving themselves to Him and living to honor Him. Because God is love, because that is His nature, because wrath is His strange work and His alien task, because that's the way God is, He offers mercy to those who turn from their sin and seek Him, to those who will humble themselves before Him. So here in verse 17, saying God has fulfilled His word of judgment, saying that has the implication if Jerusalem will turn to Him in repentance, there's hope God will fulfill His word of mercy also. And repentance is what the poet pushes for in verses 18 and 19. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord, you walls of daughter Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him, to Him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. If anger and wrath were God's normal work, there would be no point in these pleas for mercy. But because He's a God of mercy and love, there is great hope for those who cry out to Him for mercy. And in the final verses of the chapter, the poet gives Jerusalem some words to do that with. In verses 20 to 22, he gives her a lead in pouring out her heart to the Lord. And so if we try to put this together in terms of what this passage is showing us, when you and I become aware of God's anger at our sin. And if in some way we experience the devastating effects of his judgment on our sin, if that happens to us, we must not run away from him and hide. The only thing to do is run towards him. Why? Because behind his genuine anger at our sin, there is eternal love and mercy waiting to receive us. And forgive us. Here in Lamentations, that eternal love and mercy was there to be found. God had announced Himself in the Old Testament to be the compassionate and gracious God. We'll hear more about that next week in chapter 3. In the Old Testament, God had announced His character. But now... God has displayed His character in an unmistakable way. The compassionate and gracious God, the God who is love, sent His Son into this world. 
He sent his son to receive all the wrath that was due to you and me. If love was not in God's eternal nature, if wrath was his eternal nature, he would not have sent his son. But because he is love, because wrath is his strange work and his alien task, God sent his son. So that even as God poured out his wrath in our sin, we could be delivered from his wrath. Because the wrath for our sin fell on Jesus, our substitute. The true sacrificial lamb provided by God himself. If you are not a Christian, you need to fear God's wrath. It's real. It's fair. And it is coming on this world. It's coming in a way that will make the destruction of Jerusalem look mild. Fear God's wrath and run to him for mercy. Because he is love. And in his love, he has provided a way of mercy through his son, Jesus. And if you are a Christian... If you've been unsure what to make of God's anger, I hope you can see it's real. We must not refuse to talk about it. And I hope you can also see God is not angry because he's an angry God. God is angry because sin requires anger. Sin is evil. And the Lord is holy and righteous and just. He cannot act like sin doesn't matter. But God is not angry because he's an angry God. He's a loving God. And in his love, he offers mercy and life to those who've provoked his anger. He offers a way of escape to those he has every reason to destroy. This meal that we're about to share in a couple of moments puts God's wrath in its proper context for us. The bread and wine represent Jesus' body broken and his blood poured out on the cross. And when you and I consider Jesus on the cross, we realize We cannot look on God's wrath without also seeing his love. On the cross, we see his wrath poured out. We see how serious sin is. We see the strength of God's anger at sin. And in the same picture frame, we see the fathomless depth of his love that he would provide an atoning sacrifice for sinners. And not just any sacrifice, his own son. So as we take the bread and the wine in a moment, let's thank God that even in his wrath against sin, he has remembered mercy. Let's praise him for his mercy. 
We're going to do that together before we eat and drink as we sing, Here is love, vast as the ocean. <laughs>